our scripture reading today is taken from John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and the disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone waters jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know what it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs of Canaan of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Weddings, in my experience, can be fraught with tension despite their popular perception as being the happiest day of your life. The ceremony, the exchanging of vows and rings is usually fairly straightforward. It's all the other stuff that can cause the problems. So if I think back to my own wedding day, a truly terrifying 28 years ago this year, I can still remember some of the hurdles that we had to overcome on our way to what was, if I'm honest, a truly wonderful occasion. The service itself went without a hitch, so to speak. Although I do recall some raised eyebrows at our decision to omit the traditional statements about marriage being given for the nurturing of children. Yes, even then, we sensed a vocation to child-free marriage. No, the problem arose as we arrived at our reception venue, Felixstowe Labour Club, if you're interested, which we'd hired for the princely sum of 25 quid and had spent the day before furnishing with trestle tables borrowed from a nearby church and then decorating them with balloons and ribbons. We had set out the room with a top table and then four long tables for the guests. The seating plan was a work of creative ingenuity, as these things often have to be designed to avoid those awkward meetings and to generate joyful conversation. So far, so good. The problem was with, yep, you've guessed it, the wine. 
I think it's fair to say that as far as attitudes to alcohol are concerned, our two families come from quite different perspectives. Liz's family, and I, I know her dad listens to my sermons, hi Ron, uh, so I don't think there's any problem with me saying this, they're not exactly big drinkers. And indeed, many of those from the home church in Felixstowe would have been strict teetotalers. My family, on the other hand, cannot envisage a get-together for any reason, let alone a wedding, without a copious supply of table wine. So, given that our respective and respected parents had generously offered to pay for the wedding reception, we had commissioned Liz's side to cover the food, and mine to cover the drink, with careful instructions to the caterer that they should ensure not only that there was plenty of wine, but also plenty of good quality non-alcoholic drink too. So far, so good. But as we arrived at the reception venue and people started to find their allocated seats, it became clear that something wasn't right. Some of those who were looking forward to their wine found themselves confronted with a fine selection of Schlur bottles. And some of those who had sworn to never let a drop pass their lips had before them nothing but red, white and rosé. Thankfully, my best man was on the ball and he realised that the caterers had set two of the long tables entirely with wine and the other two with nothing but soft drinks, as if our seating plan had been devised around nothing other than drinking preferences. A quick word to the ushers and a few scurried rearrangements and all was well. Thankfully, our wedding did not go down in either of our family's mythologies as the great wine disaster of 1994. Well, I like to think that the bride and groom, whose wedding took place at Cana of Galilee, had a similar tale to tell in later years about how a guest at their reception averted the great wedding wine disaster of 30 CE. You see, at their wedding, like ours, it was the groom's responsibility to sort out the wine. But if I'm honest, the stakes in the first century were somewhat higher and the penalties for getting it wrong were more far-reaching. A first-century rural Jewish wedding would have lasted all week, not just one afternoon. And the whole village would have turned out and turned up, expecting all the stops to have been pulled out. In our world, weddings have become increasingly privatised. And despite the legal requirements for public notice, witnesses and unlocked doors, we have largely lost sight of the idea that a marriage is a community event, a blessing for society. The number of people at wedding receptions goes down in my experience of these things as the years have gone past. It's too expensive to just invite everyone, isn't it? In the first century, however, a wedding was the talk of the town. It was the centerpiece of society and the guest list extended far beyond family and close friends. It's likely that Jesus and his mother were part of the extended family of the couple from Cana. For them to have made this journey from Nazareth, which is, I checked on Google Maps, a walk of a couple of hours.
to have run out of wine at a community event such as this would have been unthinkable. It would have been an insult on society that would shame the couple and their family and an omen of ill on the newly contracted marriage. This is the context for the first public act undertaken by Jesus in John's Gospel. And we need to understand the significance for the couple and their families if we're to understand the significance of the sign that was Jesus turning water into wine. He turns a situation of shame into one of rejoicing. This, the first of the seven signs of the kingdom of God that we meet in John's gospel, is a decisive intervention into human affairs that saves people from shame and replaces their dishonor with honor. The first century world ran on systems of shame and honor. And the revelation of God, which comes in the person of Jesus, is of a God who transforms shame and restores damaged relationships. And our world, too, has its systems of shame and honour. Each of us lives under the threat of being ostracised from society. It determines so much of our behaviours. So from the social media driven cancel culture, where people are disvoiced for saying the wrong thing, to the public shaming ritual of doxing where a person's personal details are laid bare before the online world, public shaming is alive and well in the 21st century. We may no longer tie people to the pillory at Charing Cross, but people are still pilloried in the press and online. And some of us here today will have our own stories of victimization and shaming whether in our families or in our wider networks. And it may be that we too need to hear this good news of a God who transforms shame into honour, who overwhelms disgrace with grace. It's not without significance that this first sign of Jesus' ministry is a sign of joyfully abundant grace. You may remember from the prologue to John's Gospel, which we spent some time with in the week before Christmas, that in verse 16, we're told that the word who becomes flesh is the one from whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And this link with the prologue gives us a clue as to how we're to interpret the stone jars for the water of purification. The prologue in the very next verse, after having declared that we have received from the word grace upon grace, goes on to say, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the thing is, we have to be a bit careful with these water jars. Too many preachers have gone down the troubling line of using them to characterize the so-called legalism of Judaism 
and its transformation into the fine wine of Christianity. Personally, I blame Augustine for starting this kind of allegorical interpretation. And the problem with it is that it reinforces the anti-Semitic trope of Judaism as legalism. This wasn't the case in the first century, and it isn't the case now. All religions can be prone to legalism on occasion, but the historic witness of Judaism was that the law was a gift of God's grace given to restore the divine human relationship where it had become distanced through human sin. In a kind of religious parallel to common sense hygiene regulations, we know, don't we, if someone is infected, if someone is unclean, they need to be kept at a distance to avoid spreading their contagion. And as we gather this morning with masks on, and as Omicron continues to rip its way through our city, we all know the sense of social distancing. Well, in ancient Jewish culture, which of course lacked modern scientific understandings of disease, nonetheless, the importance of distancing and cleanliness were well known. And these became encoded within ancient religious practice. So being unclean could indeed mean that you had been in contact with something potentially harmful, maybe a dead body, for example. Or it could equally mean that you had done something that compromised your sense of purity. And here we need to realize that this wasn't all about sin. And it certainly wasn't all about sexual sin. The evangelical social purity movement of the Victorian era, with its emphasis on prostitution, immorality and drunkenness, has conditioned us to read the language of purity in a certain kind of sinful way. And we need to resist this, and even to repent of it. I think a better way of thinking about the stone water jars was to imagine them as being full of hand sanitizer. Except, of course, you know, in this case without the alcohol, apparently. But Many of us have developed, haven't we, this ritual of sanitizing our hands many times each day. You know, after we've touched things in a shop or been on public transport or shaken hands with someone. Well, it was a bit like this in the ancient Jewish world. With most people just kind of becoming unclean at multiple points through the day. Not because they had necessarily done anything particularly sinful, but just by the contact with the world. And the ritual, therefore, of washing was at a hygiene level about restoring someone's purity so they could re-enter the home and sit and eat with their friends and families. But in a world where God was understood to be at the centre of society and at the heart of each home, the language and rituals of cleanliness also became the language and rituals of the faith. Because in terms of human experience, it was essentially the same thing. If God is understood to be holy, and if our experience of ourselves is that we're not that holy, then therefore we need to be purified. If our relationship with God is to be restored and if we are able to draw near to God and not be kept at a distance. And the cause of a person's impurity might be direct sin for which they need to confess and seek forgiveness. But equally, any involvement in the compromises of daily life, 
the experience of being part of broken humanity, not to mention the harm done to a person sometimes at the hands of others, all of these can also strike a wedge between humans and their creator. And in this context, the Jewish system of ritual purification, symbolized by the stone water jars with their water, this was a gift of grace. It was a mechanism for regular forgiveness and restoration of relationships, both at a human and at a human divine level. The stone water jars don't speak of Jewish legalism. They stand for God's covenant, for the law of Moses, and for God's eternal desire to restore broken human relationships. So the turning of this water into wine is not about the overthrowing of the covenant. It's about the fulfillment of the covenant. This sign, as John's gospel calls it, of water into wine is a sign of God's decisive action in Christ to draw near to all who are sinners, to draw close to all who are far off, It is about God's desire to gift to all the fine wine of a restored relationship with God. In many ways, it's a shame that last week was Communion Sunday rather than today, because of course this link between wine and the death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins is a deeply significant symbol and ritual within our own Christian faith. And although John's Gospel doesn't contain an account of the Last Supper as we normally know it, nonetheless this link between the wine of God's kingdom and the death of Jesus is very much there in the text of the fourth Gospel. It is only in the narratives of the crucifixion at the end of the Gospel and in our story for today at the wedding of Cana that we get mention of wine. Interestingly, it's also only in those two stories that we get mention of Jesus' mother. They are linked stories, the water into wine and the death of Jesus. They, they bookend the gospel, the beginning and the end. And they show us that the fine wine of Cana is also the bitter wine of the crucifixion, which is then in turn the sweet wine of communion as the death and resurrection of Christ create and call into being the community of Christ's followers, who then are themselves the agents of transformation for the world, as the joyful abundance of God's coming kingdom continues to draw sinners and saints alike into the loving embrace of God, who reaches out to all in Christ, repairing relationships, relieving shame and restoring honor. And as I draw these reflections on the story of water into wine towards their conclusion, I have one parting question, which I think it's worthwhile our pondering. And that question is this, does it feel like our wine has run out? We might ask ourselves this question as a church, we might also ask it of ourselves as individual followers of Christ. Does it feel 
like your wine has run out? Does it feel like our wine has run out? The Hebrew Bible juxtaposes images of feasting and famine, of drinking wine and thirsting for water to convey the mixed experience of what it is to be God's people. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet is preparing Israel for a time of exile, for a period of national trauma. And in two consecutive chapters in the book of Isaiah, we find both that vision of a joyful banquet and the recognition that sometimes the food and wine of feasting must give way to the famine, guilt and shame of exile. It starts in chapter 24 with a prophecy of doom. Chapter 24, verses 6 to 9 from the prophet Isaiah. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth dwindled and few people are left. The wine dries up. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the timbrels is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No longer do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. There is no escaping it. Israel's wine was about to run out. The people of God were about to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. That was Isaiah's message to the people of Israel of old. But just as in the famous psalm where the darkest valley gives way to a table laden with food and an overflowing cup, so the hope that will sustain Israel in Babylon is the promise of a feast restored. The next chapter, Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I am sure that the author of John's Gospel has these passages in mind as he constructs the story of water into wine at Cana and parallels it with the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. So back to my question. Does it feel like our wine has run out? As a congregation here in Bloomsbury, there is no doubt the last few years have been very difficult. And we're not out of the dark valley just yet. From the recent pressures of the pandemic to the long-term decline in church attendance across all major denominations, the people of God in our time are in retreat, maybe in exile. And at a personal level, many of us continue to struggle with faith. And Bloomsbury is one of those churches which attracts people who find themselves in the last chance saloon of belief, adrift from the certainties that had nurtured them. Maybe this is you. Sustained only by the rituals of inherited faith, 
the practices of devotion that keep you coming back for more in the hope that there is more yet to be discovered. Longing for the fine wine and abundant food of God's great banquet, but sustained just by sips of water. Well, my friends, there is good news for us all here. In this, the first sign of John's gospel, our reading for the beginning of a new year. As Jesus turns water into wine, shame into honour, this is God drawing near to us. I'd like to leave you with a short sentence or two from Caroline Lewis's wonderful commentary on John's Gospel. She says, This is a sign of abundance and a sign of promise. It is a sign of abundance that manifests what grace upon grace tastes like. It tastes like the best wine, more than you could possibly want or drink when you least expect it. And it is a sign of promise because the best has been saved for the end. The best has been saved for last. Thank you, Simon. I'm going to invite Liz and Nigel up, and hopefully we also have Solomon joining us online for our panel this morning. We'll just wait for that. Oh, hello, Solomon. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. And we Thank hear you. you. All right. Okay, great. Fantastic. It's good to have you here. Thank um, you. Solomon, let's start with you, as I've okay. unmuted you already. Uh, have you got any thoughts for this morning? Or I wondered if any of us felt brave enough, perhaps, to answer the question of whether or not we feel like our wine has run out. But you don't have to answer that. Yes. It, it makes me think about um, our limitations because in my experience, uh, daily lives with people, um, how the tendency is to just give up, you know, um, we, I think sometimes we as him have this limitation, okay, there's nothing beyond what it is, and it message speak for me in the sense that God's way of thinking is beyond the impossibilities, um, so that we don't limit ourselves to the present situation, but it's promising that God can transform us if we think beyond or what the current situation is or we are facing in our lives. And then speak for me with the COVID vaccine. Who knew from the beginning that we would have a vaccine to maybe change the game plan of what we were going through about two years ago? Now here we are, this because of the scientists 
ingenuity from thinking beyond existing situations. Yeah, so having the hope to see beyond what the immediate loss of hope, I guess, or the, the darkness might appear, having that hope, having that trust in the, the grace abundance that Jesus promises us. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Nigel, do you want to go first? Um, I'll be honest, I, yeah. I find the wine is running out. I find it's, it's hard keeping up with things. It's hard keeping up with life, isn't it? <clears throat> um, and I think I just really exist sometimes. I just keep going through <clears throat> everything I have to do. And, and it can be really hard to sort of find refreshment. But then we read the scriptures and we read about the, the wine promise today. We read the book of Isaiah. It says, everyone at first come unto me. We read about Jesus saying, I, um, and at the well and saying, I will give you water and it will be water and you will never thirst. And I think <clears throat> when we're feeling a bit down and a bit discouraged, when perhaps we're busy and trying to keep up with things, we need to go back to the source, literally the source. And we need to sort of go back to God more and go back to thinking about who God is and what he has done, <clears throat> how he's delivered us from shame and guilt and how Jesus has shown us a better way. And I think when we, when we sort of go back to that source, and I, I, it's not very easy to do always. It sounds a bit pious, but I think, I think that's the way, the way ahead, really. Thank you for sharing. Liz? Yeah, I, I find myself wanting to push the, the, the picture, the metaphor slightly too far sometimes. But I really got thinking um, about the question of has your wine run out? And, and thinking also about the purpose of those water jars. Um, and I, it did, I just, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, sometimes you do need some water. Um, I was just thinking, I mean, I'll be totally honest, um, we saw some friends last night and we probably drank slightly too much wine. And actually, I don't need wine now, I, I need a bit of water. Um, and that, I know that that's not the purpose of the story, but that's what kept going around in my head, is that actually um, the, the water jars were there and they were reminding people of their... Ho hopefully they were reminding people of the grace, is, uh, you know, and they, but they were also reminding people of the, their need for cleansing. And, and I think there's a time and a place for things. So obviously at that wedding, what was needed was wine. So it, the, the impossible, you know, happened and it's great that the water was turned into wine. But actually sometimes, you know, if you need to clean yourself, you don't want to run a bath of wine, um, even though actually the alcohol would probably clean the, clean, do the germs better. But um, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, so it just kind of got me thinking to the idea that there is a time and a place that at the moment, yes, it does sometimes feel like the wine's run out. Um, I love the idea of shame being turned to rejoicing. And I also love the idea of thinking that maybe we shouldn't be too scared of the idea that we feel sometimes the wine has run out and that maybe there's a time for things and that um, that, that good, the best wine can still come out of the impossible. So, um, yeah, so I, I was playing around a lot with that in my head. Um, but, but yes, and I think that sometimes, yeah, sometimes we're going to feel like the wine's run out and I, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest over the last couple of years and all the stuff that's happened that that's how we feel. Mm, completely. I, I can't imagine that there's anyone really sat 
online at home or in this room that hasn't felt the weight and the wear of the last couple of years in one way or another through personal loss, through having to work differently, through just, if you're an extrovert, not being able to connect with people in the same way. Just, it has been a difficult two years. I, I'd like to ask the question as well though, uh, what would abundance look like? What does your hope look like? Selection of soft drinks and wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, for me personally, if I can come in quickly. Yeah. I think, yes. Abundance for me would not be seen as quantity, but in as a Christian, I'll be seeing that as a restored relationship with God um, should be beyond how we think about things. Because with God, I think it's where we have the abundance of things and where the impossibilities can be possible, where a quantity can be turned into quality. But in that restored relationship, as Simon mentioned in, in the sermon, can be abundance for me because that comes everything within. Yeah, abundance can be quality, not just lots. I like yeah. that. I think as well, picking up on the sort of first part of the sermon, Simon talked about shame. I think shame mm. is very powerful. Mm. We all know what it's like to feel shame. But the, the thing about shame is, is, is one, it has no place and should have no place in a Christian life. And two, I think shame is, is put upon us and we put shame on others to deflect from our own shame. So if I think of the church I used to be in, there the, the was lots about the horrors and hypocrisies of Roman Catholicism, the terrors of atheism, the, the dreadful things the Muslims want to do, the uh, terrible things that all the homosexuals want to do. And yet was, you never heard anything about pride or avarice, meanness, unkindness. And if, and if the people in that church should have been ashamed of anything, those were the things perhaps they needed to be ashamed of. And I think we often put shame on other people to deflect it from the shame we feel. So instead of trying to put shame on other people and instead of um, demonising a group or a characteristic, particularly when it's a group or characteristic we might not have ourselves because it's much easier to point out other people's problems than to admit our own. We need to deal with that shame and make sure it's not in our lives and make sure we, we, we don't have that and make sure when we come before God, we know that we come before God as a child of God and that he loves us and that there is nothing more or less we can do to make God love us more or love us less. And I think if you start dealing with your own shame and with your own sense that I'm not really worthy or if everyone knew about this part of my character, they wouldn't, they wouldn't like it. If you start dealing with that, you can start living life more abundantly, I think. I think the beauty of this story is that, yes, uh, this Jesus can be this antidote for shame that we've put upon other people like I mean you can't sit here in this church and listen to that sermon and not think about inclusion and diversity and the marginalized and all those that we have historically worked with and and worked to try and include 
but also Christ is that antidote for our own shame, for our personal shame that we hold, that we keep hidden from others, that you're right, becomes the thing that we lash out because of or with. But Christ is that antidote for that shame as well, that the wine, that abundance is for us. We're a very good doing church. We're not always necessarily quite so good, I think, at recognizing the blessings we have for ourselves, that, that Christ can be personal to us and that we are loved i am loved you are loved i'm almost going back to my god is love sermon again there Libby. <laughs> let's let's hold it there thank you very much for sharing and being so honest this morning um i would like to ask you guys to go away and think about what would abundance look like either in your personal life or for us as a community but let's move on and sing our next hymn christ is our light the bright morning star covering with radiance all from near and far. Loving God of abundant grace, we bring our prayers to you today, offering our gratitude and thanksgiving for the good things in our lives. For those times and places and people who bring us joy and happiness. We thank you for these signs of your coming kingdom. We also offer to you those areas of our lives which have yet to experience the transformation of your presence, the hidden shame, the unacknowledged addictions, the broken relationships. We ask that you will bring healing, forgiveness and new life into our lives, that we may more fully live in the light of your love as revealed in Christ Jesus. So we pray now for all those known to us who live lives of unfulfilled hope, for those who contemplate the future with fear or despair, and we ask that like the guests at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, they will discover through your presence an unexpected gift of grace. May those who mourn be comforted. May those who are put upon find help. May those who hunger and thirst be satisfied. May those who are fearful find solace. May those who doubt be reassured. May those who are discouraged find courage. May those who are shamed be honored. May those who are sinful find forgiveness. In a moment of silence now, we hold before you those situations that you have placed on our hearts. We pray particularly for those who have suffered and continue to suffer as a result of the pandemic. And we think especially of those children who have missed out on education due to lack of access to the internet and the closure of their schools. 
let there be a bright future for them. We pray also for the people of Yemen who are starving and in need of international help. Lord, guide those in power to help the ongoing crisis in Yemen. We pray for those who are sick, dying and suffering, for those who have physical or mental health issues, and we ask that they will experience the wholeness and healing that comes through Jesus. We thank you for new life, new healing and new minds. So may the presence of Christ, who turns water into wine, be present to our lives and our world, surprising us with new hope, new life and new joy, revealing the coming kingdom of justice and peace for which we long and pray. Amen. <laughs>